Hi everyone. I trust that you are well. I trust that you had a very blessed Easter weekend last weekend and that you got some rest and time with your family over that long weekend. Instead of moving away from Easter and moving on to other things, I thought perhaps it would be helpful for us to linger a little at the foot of the cross and near the empty tomb and let some of the significance of that first Easter really sink into our hearts and lives. And so today I'd like us to consider a passage from the Gospel of John, John chapter 20 and verses 19 to 31. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is God's word. How do you deal with doubt? Here is how one jury in America dealt with doubt. A man was on trial for murder in Oklahoma, and there was a great deal of evidence against this man, overwhelming evidence, in fact, that he had committed the murder. But the only problem was that there was no body. And the lawyer who was defending this man knew that in the light of all of this evidence, his client was probably going to be convicted. And so in his concluding argument, he resorted to a trick. As he stood up, he looked at his watch and he said, Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I have a surprise for you. Within one minute, the man whom my client is accused of murdering will walk into this courtroom. And he looked towards the back of the courtroom door. Well, the jurors were fairly stunned, and they all looked towards the door, but nothing happened. And finally, the lawyer said, 
Actually, I just made that last statement up. But you all looked at the door as if you were expecting that something would happen. And I therefore put it to you that there is reasonable doubt in your minds as to whether this murder ever took place, and I insist that you return a verdict of not guilty. Well, the jury were clearly confused, and they retired to deliberate the case. And a few minutes later, they returned and they pronounced the verdict guilty. And this lawyer said to them, but how could you return a verdict of guilty? You all looked at the door as though you expected someone to come into the courtroom. There must be doubt in your minds. And the jury foreman replied, you're right. We all looked at the door, but your client didn't. I wonder how many of us have experienced times of doubt in our Christian lives. Maybe this isn't even an academic question for you. Maybe this is something that you're struggling with right now. Perhaps our doubts have arisen from looking at our world. When we take a look at some of the horrendous and horrific things taking place in our world, our faith takes a knock and we think to ourselves, is there really a loving God behind the universe? Or perhaps our doubts arise from an encounter with science. We sit in lecture after lecture at university where God is excluded from the picture completely and our faith in an imminent and involved God is challenged. Or perhaps we meet someone from another religion and they seem so nice and they seem so sincere and we wonder to ourselves, is it true that they are wrong and we are right? Will God condemn such a nice person as that? Perhaps our doubts arise from a personal event, the death of a loved one, a broken relationship, the loss of a job, a prolonged illness. Suddenly our security structures are whipped away from under us and we flounder. Or perhaps our faith takes a knock from within the church itself. Perhaps we're hurt by the behaviour of fellow Christians or perhaps one of our favourite Christian leaders is found to have a hidden and sinful life, and suddenly we find ourselves floundering. We wonder whether it's all true. Or maybe the reason is none of the above. We simply wake up one morning and God feels a million miles away, and he feels absent for a period of days, or weeks, or months. We all face times of doubt. And in this passage of scripture, we are introduced to the patron saint of doubters, a man called Thomas. Although this passage is about doubt, it is also about doubt's opposite, faith. And so today I'd like us to look at the subject of doubt by considering four things that these verses teach us about faith and doubt, if that doesn't seem too contradictory. Firstly, I think these verses speak about the fragility of faith. Faith is fragile, which means that times of doubt are natural. To be fair, Thomas had good reason to doubt the resurrection, and I think that his doubts highlight something of the horror and the seeming finality of the cross Thomas's doubts remind us that the crucifixion of Jesus was not a couple of nails through hands and feet with a bit of blood, as in many of the Renaissance paintings of the crucifixion, but rather a horrific, cruel, tortured death, as in the movie The Passion of the Christ. 
Thomas was in no doubt that no one could have survived something like that. He really knew that Jesus was dead, as dead as the doornails that had kept him on the cross. And so he doubted the reports of the resurrection. Just to point out that doubt coexisted with faith even when Jesus was alive. Do you remember the man in Mark chapter 9 who comes to Jesus because his son is demon-possessed? And he says to Jesus, If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus replies, If you can, everything is possible for him who believes. And the man says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I think that that is a cry that many of us experience from time to time in our Christian lives. Or Matthew chapter 11, we read about John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, who was commissioned by God to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He had been out in the desert baptizing people and calling them back to God. He'd pointed to Jesus and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet towards the end of his life, lonely and afraid in prison, he sends messengers to Jesus to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? John had some very real doubts about Jesus. And perhaps it would be helpful for us to remember that other great Christian men and women down through the ages have also experienced times of doubt. The Scottish reformer John Knox wrote of a time when his soul knew anger, wrath and indignation, which is conceived against God, calling all his promises into doubt. Martin Luther once wrote in his diary, For more than a week Christ was wholly lost. I was shaken by desperation and blasphemy against God. Evelyn Underhill admitted to times when the whole spiritual scheme seems in question. And a man called Increase Mather, one of the Puritan leaders, once wrote in his diary, greatly molested with temptations to atheism. Doubt is a very natural part of our Christian experience. It's natural when we are dealing with an invisible God. In one of his books, Philip Yancey points out that doubt always coexists with faith, for in the presence of certainty, who would need faith at all? One of the most encouraging verses that I came across on the subject of doubt comes from the little book of Jude in the New Testament. In a long list of how we are to treat different kinds of people in the church, Jude says this in verse 22, Be merciful. To those who doubt. And that's how Jesus responds to Thomas. He is merciful towards him and treats him gently. I want to assure you today that doubt is normal. That's the first consolation that I receive from this passage. I think, though, that there were a couple of things in Thomas's life that didn't exactly help him with his doubts. Let's continue to consider these under the main heading of the fragility of faith. But firstly, Thomas's disposition didn't help him in his doubt. John is the only one who tells us about Thomas in his gospel, and he records two other incidents in his life that give us a bit of an insight into his personality. 
In John chapter 11, we read how Jesus' friend Lazarus dies. Jesus tells the disciples that they're going to go back to Judea so that he can raise Lazarus from the dead. And the disciples are concerned because some of the people in Judea had previously wanted to stone Jesus. And Thomas pipes up and says, Let's go with him that we may die with him. Just the kind of positive, enthusiastic, upbeat person that you'd like to have along on a hiking trip. And then in John chapter 14, Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going to leave them, speaking about his death and resurrection and ascension. Jesus says to them, you know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And in fact, we can be so glad that Thomas asks that question because it prompts Jesus to speak those wonderful words. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But Thomas seems to have had a bit of a melancholic personality. You may have noticed in this passage that Thomas's nickname was Didymus, which means he who is most like Eeyore. No, it means at the twin. And I wonder if Thomas may have had a twin brother or sister who was the exact opposite of Thomas, an optimistic twin. In fact, I heard a story about two twin boys. The one was a complete pessimist. Nothing would cheer him up. He went through his childhood totally miserable. And the other twin was the exact opposite. He was cheerful about everything. Nothing could depress him. He could get excited about a cardboard box. And one day, a friend of the family asked if he could experiment with these two boys. He took them to his house, and he took the depressed twin, and he placed him in a room full of toys. There were train sets and remote-control cars. There was a DVD play and a jungle gym. And the man said, let's see if that cheers him up. And then he took the optimistic twin and he placed him in a bare room that was filled halfway up with manure. And he closed the door and said, let's see if that calms him down. And he left the children in the rooms for half an hour. And after half an hour, the man took the parents with him and they went into the rooms to check on the boys. And when they opened the door to the first room, there was the pessimistic twin sat in the middle of the floor crying. He'd broken the DVD player, the radio control car had run over his foot and he'd fallen off the jungle gym and cut his lip. And then the man opened the second door. And all they could see was manure flying through the air. This little boy was frantically digging through it as fast as he could. And when he saw them, he shouted out, Daddy, Daddy, I just know there's a pony in here somewhere. Thomas was the pessimistic twin. He was the kind of person who looks at the land of milk and honey and sees only calories and cholesterol. The kind of person who would get a paper cut from a get well card. And perhaps those of us who are prone to melancholy and pessimism, maybe in one of our good moments, we need to write down on a piece of paper somewhere, I am naturally melancholic. And if I am having a dark night of the soul, please remember that this will pass. The second thing that didn't help Thomas was isolation. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, we read in verse 24 that Thomas was not with them. We're not told why. Maybe he was sick. Maybe he was sorrowful. But he was absent. 
Pastor John Stott says this in one of his sermons. Something similar happens, you know, every Sunday all over the world. The Lord's people gather on the Lord's day. They remember the promise that he gave that if only two or three are met in his name, he will be there without doubt, without fail in their midst. But although the Lord's people come together on the Lord's day, broadly speaking, somebody is bound to be absent. The Lord's people gather around the Lord's table, ready for him to make himself known to them as he delights to do in the breaking of bread. But some people are absent. It's a calculated risk taken by irregular churchgoers. So let's learn this lesson from Thomas, namely the spiritual risk of spasmodic church attendance and the spiritual blessing of disciplined regularity. J.C. Ryle, the Bishop of Liverpool, who died in 1900, said this, The very sermon that we needlessly miss may contain a precious word in season for our souls. The very assembly for prayer and praise from which we stay away may be the very gathering that would have cheered and established and quickened our hearts. And I think they both have a point. There is a great danger in being alone as a Christian. There are encouragements and challenges from God's word that we would miss out on. There are also temptations that we would never have experienced if we'd been together with others on a regular basis. During my years as a pastor, from time to time, I've had church members come up to me and say, I just need a bit of time away from the congregation to be alone with God. Don't worry, I'll come back. And whenever I've heard those words, my heart has sunk, because very rarely have those folk come back to any meaningful connection with God's people. Now, of course, at present, it's very difficult for us to meet together, and for some it may be downright dangerous and even inadvisable. But nevertheless, even if we can't meet up on a Sunday with others, it's vitally important to be part of some sort of Christian community. Even if it's a regular phone call with a Christian friend where you share a bit about what's going on in your life and you read the Bible and pray together, or whether it's a Zoom Bible study group or meeting with a friend in the back garden, Christian community is vital for Christian growth. The writer to the Hebrews says to us, Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, even though we may need to find creative ways of doing that at present. And then just one other thing to say under this heading of the fragility of faith. Although doubt may be normal, it can be dangerous and destructive. Doubt can lead us to unbelief. There is a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt says, I'm not sure I can believe. Unbelief says, I won't believe. And initial doubt can lead to unbelief, which displeases God. And sometimes our doubts can also be deceitful. 
A few years ago, there was a prominent lecturer at a Bible college in London who started having all sorts of doubts about his Christian faith. He began writing papers and giving lectures questioning the traditional understanding of Jesus' sacrificial death, and it all seemed a bit odd until in a staff meeting he admitted that he'd fallen in love with a woman who was not his wife. And then it became clear. It was a classic case. Here was a Christian man who was tempted in a particular direction, and it was easier to give up his belief in God rather than give up his sinful behavior. Sometimes we have genuine questions and doubts about aspects of our faith, but sometimes doubt can be a cover-up for disobedience, and we need to be careful and honest about our doubts. Am I doubting my faith? or wanting to disobey God. So, the fragility of faith. That was the longest point. Uh, Don't worry, the rest are shorter. Secondly, in these verses, we see the assurance of faith. While faith may be fragile, it is certain. Our faith in Jesus is not a great leap into the dark. We do have grounds for our faith. And here in this passage, we see two things that gave Thomas assurance of faith and can give us assurance of faith too. Firstly, there is eyewitness testimony. Verse 25, the other disciples told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. As we saw last week, one of the things that just cannot be explained away is the transformation of those disciples from a terrified, discouraged, disillusioned bunch hidden in an upstairs room to a group of men and women ready to die for their faith. Something must have happened. And here it is. We have seen the Lord. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, Peter says, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. There is evidence out there, and I'd encourage you to spend some time investigating for yourself. I mentioned last time the book, The Case for Christ, which has also been made into an excellent movie. It describes one man's journey of skeptically looking at the evidence for the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and his coming to the conclusion that it must be true. But secondly, there is also first-hand experience. That's what Thomas experienced. Jesus is so gracious to Thomas. There's a repeat performance a week later, especially for Thomas. All the same conditions. The doors locked. Jesus appears. He says the same words. Peace be with you. Thomas experienced the living Lord Jesus for himself. But it wasn't just seeing Jesus that changed Thomas, but also it was what Jesus said to him. Jesus quotes Thomas's words back to him. Verse 27, Then Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. How did Jesus know what Thomas had said? 
Thomas knew that none of the disciples had found Jesus and said to him, do you know what Thomas said? In this moment, Thomas realizes that Jesus was there, unseen, when he'd refused to believe his friends, when he'd insisted that he'd be allowed to put his finger in the scars. It's not just Jesus' appearance that brings Thomas to faith, but Jesus' words that show him his omniscience and his omnipresence. And so Thomas declares, my Lord and my God. In his new book, Hope in Times of Fear, The Resurrection and the Meaning of Easter, Timothy Keller says this, Thomas was humbled by Jesus' grace, and suddenly the wounds took on new meaning. Thomas originally wanted to see the wounds as evidence of Jesus' power. Now he saw them for what they really were, evidence of Jesus' love, his sacrificial love for him. Jesus was saying, in effect, the wounds are not simply evidence that I am alive. They are proof that I died for you, that your debt was fully paid, and that the power of death over you is broken. Jesus was saying to Thomas, I know all your doubts, all your fears, all your broken promises, all your flaws. I've seen you to the bottom, but I still love you and I'm still here for you. Maybe today you have a great deal of skepticism, all sorts of doubts about the Christian faith. But perhaps underneath that you need what Thomas needed, not merely to see that Jesus did rise from the dead, but to see that Jesus rose from the dead for you. What convinced Thomas was the sight of Jesus' wounds and the realization that those wounds were made out of love for him. Have you looked at the wounds of Jesus and realized that they were made out of love for you? Surely if there is a God and he died on a cross for you, it's worth at least praying and saying, God, if you do exist and you do love me, I accept you and love you in return. Please forgive my sin and take control of my life. And if you are filled with doubt today or despair, look again at those wounds and realize that even if you don't understand everything that is taking place, even if you are troubled, even if you're tempted to give the whole thing up, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? He's already given us Jesus. The fragility of faith, the certainty of faith. Thirdly, in this passage, there is the glory of faith. Verse 28, Thomas said to him, My Lord, and my God. That was an astonishing thing for a Jewish man to say to any human being. This really is the climax of the Gospel of John. The biggest doubter becomes the greatest believer. And it's so interesting and significant to see that once Thomas had worked through his doubt, his faith was stronger than it had been before, stronger than any of the disciples, in fact, because Thomas addresses Jesus in a way that no one else in the Gospels had ever addressed Jesus before. And perhaps here is another encouragement when it comes to doubt in our lives. Although times of doubt can be scary, 
they can lead us to stronger faith in the future. One writer has said this about Thomas's doubts. Thomas absolutely refused to say that he understood what he did not understand or that he believed what he did not believe. There's an uncompromising honesty about him. He would never still his doubts by pretending that they did not exist. I think that a certain amount of healthy questioning is good for us as believers. Don't swallow every Christian thing you hear from the pulpit or that you read in a book or that you listen to in a podcast or that you watch on a YouTube video. Think about it. Chew it over. Question it. In particular, measure it up against the Bible. Questioning and even doubt can be something really healthy. Frederick Buchner was a Presbyterian minister and writer, and he said this about doubt. Whether your faith is that there is a God or that there is not a God, if you don't have any doubts, you're either kidding yourself or asleep. Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. The fragility of faith, the certainty of faith, the glory of faith. Finally, in this passage, there is an invitation to faith. John is not simply writing his gospel out of an interest in the historical figure of Jesus. He is not writing to entertain us. He has a very specific intention in writing his gospel. Verses 30 and 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The word believing here can actually have two senses. It can refer to initial faith, believing in Jesus for the very first time, not simply intellectual assent, I believe in Jesus, but rather the committing of our whole lives to him. And again, if you have yet to do that, what's preventing you from doing that even now? But secondly, the word believing can have the sense of go on believing. These things are written that you may go on believing that Jesus is the Christ. Here then is another help in times of doubt. We go to John's Gospel, and we go to the rest of the Bible, and we read it because it is written for us that we may go on believing that Jesus is the Christ. Kathleen Norris is a writer who once spent a year in a Benedictine monastery, and she's recorded her experiences in a wonderful book called The Cloister Walk. At one point she writes this, when I first stumbled upon the Benedictine Abbey, I was surprised to find that the monks were so unconcerned with my weighty doubts and intellectual frustrations over Christianity. What interested them more was my desire to come to their worship, the liturgy of the hours. I was a bit disappointed. I'd thought that my doubts were spectacular obstacles to my faith, and was confused but intrigued when an old monk blithely stated that doubt is merely the seed of faith, a sign that faith is alive and ready to grow. 
the monks seemed to believe that if I just kept coming back to worship, kept coming home, things would eventually fall into place. And there's a very special promise for those of us who go on believing. Did you see what Jesus said about us in verse 29? Then Jesus told Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us. While we may battle with doubt, we are blessed if we keep on believing. There's that wonderful verse in the letter of First Peter. Peter's writing several years after these events, and he's writing to a group of churches far away from Jerusalem. And he says to these baby Christians, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the gold of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What became of Thomas? Well, we're not 100% sure, but there seems to be a good body of evidence to suggest that he took the gospel all the way to India. The Thomist church in southern India traces its roots back to the Apostle Thomas. Tradition has it that he was martyred in India by having a spear thrust through him. Quite fitting, really, for the man who wouldn't believe unless he felt the mark of the spear in Christ's side. Thomas was a questioner, a doubter, a pessimist. But once he committed himself to something, he committed himself 100%. And God grant that while we may share Thomas's doubts, we would also share Thomas's devotion. Amen.